Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at revenuecat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and my guest today is Matthew Panzerino, the former editor-in-chief at TechCrunch. On the podcast, I talk with Matthew about how to pitch your app to the press, the importance of focusing on differentiation, and why customizing your pitch to an individual writer is so much more effective. Hey, Matthew, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, David. I appreciate you uh, having me on. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk through, you know, you were at TechCrunch for 10 years and before that working at The Next Web and have a lot of insights in what it's like to be a writer who's pitched hundreds of times a day, but also know how to tell great stories and how to get attention for things. So I want to dive in just talking about what it's like to be a writer in 2023. I think a lot of folks don't quite understand just how inundated folks' email boxes are. So when they send out a pitch, they don't know that they're one of maybe hundreds in a single day and they're expecting a response, but aren't crafting their pitch in a way that helps get attention. And so let's just kick it off with that. Like, what is it like for your average TechCrunch writer? And you know so many other people in the press as well, but what's it like in 2023 to be a tech journalist? Yeah, I mean, it is tough. You're right, like the fire hose thing is real. There's just an enormous amount. If you look at like the early days of the App Store in the 2010, 2011 range, I mean, obviously App Store was launched a couple of years prior, but didn't really start to gain steam beyond boutique apps or early adopters shipping apps until about the 2010, 2011 range. That was essentially when the pendulum swung towards everybody must have an app. Like, oh, you are a brand, you are a company, you're an entity, you should have an app as well as, of course, the new companies being founded turning towards, oh, you're founding a company that does a thing on the internet. Why aren't you doing it as an app? That was the kind of turning point. At that time, the volume was very much manageable, right? It was, hey, dozens of apps are launching every week, but we can scan those, get a feel for what's interesting. Maybe there's an existing brand that is launching an app presence, And so we're going to see what their take on it is. Because at that point, you're charting in real time, charting the history of what it means to make an app, what features it needs, what design looks like in that space, et cetera. I believe that's how you and I met when you were at the Next Web. I think it was like a cold pitch at the Next Web in in 2010, 2011 is when we first were talking. And it was, it was genuinely easier back then to get a hold of somebody like you and have a conversation and talk about your app. Yeah. I mean, I think those days of, hey, I'm just a person who's trying to do a thing and it's app related. The app part of it was enough to kind of go, okay, cool. It's an app thing. Let me look at it, see if there's anything that I think on the first glance, it seems compelling or clever or stands out in some way. Like they're leveraging a new piece of framework that iOS is launching, right? Now, obviously not everybody thinks this way, but as far as the core tech press, which is 
really my only real perspective on this. I never really existed in the long tail newsrooms, whereas like the storytelling gets more nebulous around does this touch on a cultural moment? Is there a celebrity involved? Does it tap into another zeitgeist that I already cover? That's different. But for us at that time, specifically, and frankly, even to this day, it's like, oh, you're leveraging a bit of new technology that's been launched by the platform, whether it's like Apple or Google or whoever else, or you're leveraging a new sensor or a new piece of hardware. And you're saying like, hey, this makes this experience possible. It wasn't possible before. I think a lot of that stuff was very easy in the early days to pick up on and go, oh, okay, cool. This is clever. It seems interesting. The person seems like they have their stuff together. It seems well-designed because design is a calling card. As you and I both well know, it's the equivalent of a well-designed business card is now your web presence or your app. If it looks clean, crisp, well-designed, well-presented, the copy is simple and clean and spelled correctly. <laughs> the font choices are good. These things are, for someone who is actively looking at an app and saying, should I cover this or should I not every day, you just sort of get a sensibility about which of those are going to be worth your attention out of the hundreds of pitches that you may receive in a day. Uh, if you're flicking through those, you're like, hey, this stands out for those reasons. Uh, but even if you are not a student of app design or a student of typography or anything like that, it is very much subcutaneous. It's there, right? Whether you actively realize it or not, it's affecting you as the viewer. And so I think that's important to remember putting your best foot forward design-wise or sidestepping that entirely and generating curiosity based on lack of information, right? <laughs> that's also a tag. Because the fact is, it's like to rein ourselves in and bring it back to that exact question about getting attention and what it's like to be a writer, you have a few seconds per email at most to make any judgment call about whether or not you're going to engage with it. And I'm talking about whether or not you're going to click through from the subject line. Some people are crazy and work with their inbox on an expanded basis. For me, it's sender and subject line. That's the most I can afford real estate wise. Yeah, other writers work differently. So this is not a mandate. It's not how everybody works. But most of the people I know work this way. And so your subject line needs to be simple. It needs to either be very short or very long. In other words, are you putting everything in the subject line and the body is basically just here's the contact information or here's a link to a press kit? Or are you trying to say, please look at this because XYZ, very short, very simple, and then get in there and then make your pitch in the copy. So there's two major approaches I feel that work very well for a writer who's scanning subject lines. So your subject line maybe gets in the major keywords, which should not, by the way, for the most part, be hinged on public affairs. I just don't feel that public affairs pitching works well. That's news hook pitching, which I think a lot of PR agencies will tell you to do and think is very useful. I don't, in general, find it very useful. And I think most writers, unfortunately, tend to be more skeptical and jaded than your average audience because they've seen more, right? <laughs> they see 10 times as much as they actually write and publish. And that means that if you're going to them saying like, oh, did you see that so-and-so said some dumb stuff on the internet? Well, our app fixes that, right? Yeah. Or even worse, some natural disaster just happened. Guess what? Our app, it's like, don't do that. A, it's just poor taste. But then B, like, I don't think any writer's ever really been tempted by that hook. <laughs> you know, any quality writer, I think that's the last thing I would do. Your subject line keywords should, however, 
be geared towards one or two levels up in the meta of what's happening. So you should be cognizant of the world around us. Let's say we pull you out a current affair that would be interesting to pitch around. If you're a fintech app, this post zero interest rate universe, if you have something that appeals to a demographic that may have been less likely to be interested in it before when interest rates were low. Let's say you are, I'll just pick one out of the ether because I like them. I think they're cool, but uh, Copilot. Copilot took advantage of the fact that, and very straightforwardly and non-queasily, took advantage of the fact that Mint was shut down by Intuit. And Copilot had been building for a long time. This is obviously not something where they're like, ooh, Mint's going to get shut down. Let me build this thing. They have existed. They've been grinding it out. I use it. I think it's a really cool app for personal finance management. But They'd done the work. However, they were ready. They were on the balls of their feet when Mint was shut down. They took advantage of it by sharing, doing a little pitching, I'm sure. There was organic stuff a lot. People just said, oh, what is the other good stuff out there? Well, they had done the work to make their presence known, and they had a little bit of traction. So you end up in this position where you're able to capitalize on this Mint shutdown. That's a very organic, current affairs, news hook type marketing plan or at least marketing reaction, right? They're a small team. So I'm sure it's not like, let's gear up the department. It's like, no, all hands on deck. What do we need to do to take advantage of this scenario? And I think they did that well. I use a very similar app, Monarch Money. It's a fantastic one as well. So your co-pilot, your Monarch, you were talking about, you only see the subject line. So what's the subject line they write that's going to get your attention? How do you tell that story in, in 10 words or less to get attention in that subject line? Yeah, it's like, if you're losing Mint, we're here to help. If you're going to go at it at the subject line, I think what you do is instead of capitalizing or leaning into the schadenfreude of the situation or the negative connotation, oh, Mint sucked, we're better, or oh, so sad, Mint's gone, good thing we're here. Instead, it's like, hey, this thing millions of people used over the course of a decade is going away. And we know a lot of you are sort of wondering what's next. We are here to help. We think we're next. We think we're great, et cetera. So confidence, clarity in your mission. We're here to help you manage your finances. We're here to step into that gap. But no like reveling in the demise. That's a restraint thing that is hard for people to feel because in the moment you want to like take advantage of it and you are viewing it as an entity because the fact is most people realize if you're a Mint user early on, you realize they haven't really done anything with that product in a long time. It hasn't gotten any better in any material way. It, however, was doing a job for a lot of people still. And it was being maintained. And there are still people that work at mid trying to keep it running. And the financial systems connections require constant upkeep. So like, there's no way that that app was not being worked on. So there's dozens, if not hundreds of people that are probably out of a job now, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to think through your second order effects of your copy. So if you're to go into that thing with really leaning into the capitalizing on the shutdown angle, then you end up setting yourself up for looking like a jerk, saying like, oh, you don't care about the people that just lost their jobs or capitalizing on the misfortune of people who maybe really relied on Mint to give them a snapshot of their financial situation and are now desperately looking for something new. And instead, you're like, hey, it's really unfortunate that such a pillar of the community shut down. But we've been working on something we think is even better. So feel free to take a look at what we've got here. That's the way I would position my thought process around pitching that. You want the attention. You've got to capitalize on the moment. That's a given. But doing it with style and with restraint 
allows you the freedom in the future to be like, hey, we were never an antagonist in this space. We were always working alongside these other places to try to do the job we're all trying to do, which is help you manage your finances better. Our job is not to beat other people. It's to do a job for you, hopefully better than everybody else. And I think that's hard for some early stage companies to modulate. On that note, while I'm forcing you to live write pitches, I think this is another good kind of example of that kind of opportunity in, I think it was this spring or last spring, Apple weather was going down a bunch. There were actually a lot of posts about like, hey, Apple weather's not reliable anymore. Here are the apps to use instead. And I actually have a weather app. We hadn't updated it, so I didn't bother pitching it. But if I were in that moment with my weather app, how do I pitch like, hey, Apple weather's going down, use my app instead? How do you approach that without throwing out? Apple under the bus. These are the kind of things that come up for app developers where they've got a better solution or things happen to other apps or things like that. So how would you pitch that without totally throwing Apple under the bus? There's two components to that. One is you have to understand when you're punching up or punching down. This goes for journalism as well. Writers often have issues with this, especially early in their career. You have to understand the weight that you carry versus the weight that you are pushing against. Apple can handle it, right? <laughs> like in many ways, like Apple can sort of take <laughs> the abuse as an organization. Now, on an individual level, I'm sure the people that work on weather weren't happy that it was breaking a lot, but it is a matter of general states. And I think if you evaluate every scenario by that rule of not punching down, you can sometimes realize like, hey, it's okay to get a little feisty with our marketing when it comes to competing with a company like Apple, which has enormous resources to get this stuff right. They have essentially infinite resources. The fact that they work in small teams does not absolve them from the idea of having infrastructure that's sound and that works well. And they take that seriously. And the fact of the matter is, is that they should. And so calling them out or saying, hey, if you went to Apple Weather today, and you got a blank screen, maybe it's time to look at some other options, is not necessarily something where I would put it in that same pocket of reveling in the demise of an architecture that employs a lot of people or that people have relied on for a long time. So I think it's actually okay to get a little feistier when you're dealing with the giants, literally the biggest company on the planet, <laughs> yeah. definitely biggest tech company, sometimes biggest company overall. And I think it's harder to generate empathy <laughs> in an audience or in yourself when you're competing with that. There's a phenomenon, I think, where people will capitalize on a moment in time and create a marketing plan or create a pitch around it, but without any sort of consideration of what happens after. So let's say, okay, Apple weather's kind of being wonky. Maybe it's been wonky for a day. And then the second day of outages goes in, you're like, we're a weather app. Why aren't we putting ourselves out there as an alternative for people who need a weather app right now? You know, And you go and you make that plan and you put it out there. And let's say your plan is something like to riff on the idea that Apple weather isn't there, but we're there for you. We still have all of this stuff. We have all the information you need to decide whether or not you're wearing a coat or whether or not your job site is going to be muddy today and whatever, right? The second order ramifications of weather is what you're playing on, right? Like, what do you need? And then you make that whole marketing plan around that. But what happens when... Apple weather comes back up and it's really strong again. What stops people from moving away from you and back to Apple weather? Because they're like, your whole pitch was, they're not there, we are. Okay, well, they came back, so why you, right? And so I think instead you really have to go 
to this order of Apple weather is down. So we're going to use that as an opportunity to market ourselves. But the marketing really should not be around Apple weather being down and us being up. Instead, it should be around why our experience and feature set is better than Apple weather at any time. You're using the moment that they're down to push into that gap and push into keywords being on the rise and the searches being on the rise and all of the pattern matching and registration is aligning and spiking. Search terms are spiking and your attribution opportunities are arising. Your keyword marketing opportunities are rising up. All that's great. Step into that gap. But instead of stepping in with the message that like, haha, they're down, we're not, you step in with the message that like, hey, they're down, did you know? <laughs> We offer like all of these really cool features that Apple Weather doesn't, mainly because they have a focused experience and we have on that single app and they're doing so many things, but this is all we do. This is all we care about. We care about weather, weather, weather all the way down. Apple cares about weather for five minutes out of a year, metaphorically speaking. And we all we do is care about this. And so here's all the features and things that you've been missing from that experience that just happens to be down right now. And I think that that's the way you do it because... On the other end of that marketing push, on the other end of all those users, the churn is mitigated by the fact that those users came in through a pipeline of understanding the differentiation factors, not just the needs in the moment of an app that was up while another one was down. And I think that that's like a key strategic mistake that a lot of companies make, especially early on, is that they view targets of opportunity as moments to win in the moment, but they don't consider the ramifications downstream. Like if your marketing has been preaching that you're really good because X, Y, or Z other external, not internal, but external factor is in place, whether being down, mint being shut down, those are externalities. The internalities are, we're really good. We're well-designed. We're a pleasure to use. We can serve you well. Those internalities are the things that will keep your users there and keep them from churning back out when Apple weather comes back up. Or even when the next keynote announces one more feature for Apple Weather, it keeps them from churning out because they're like, oh yeah, but I have all of these features that I was pitched on, marketed on as I was coming into this thing. They're still there. I still use them and they're still great. And I think that's a huge misstep that a lot of people make because they're so anxious to take advantage of the moment. They think that the moment is the marketing when in fact the moment is just the moment and the marketing should be the same story that you've been telling about yourself and your benefits, the app's benefits to the user the whole time and will tell into the future. I want to get back into pitching in a bit, but I did want to step back to the first question we started on, which was understanding what it's like to be a journalist in 2023. And as you alluded to, there's so many more pitches, so much more news. How did you at TechCrunch as editor-in-chief decide how to balance the breaking news, the this company raised this amount of money, this app did this, I mean, there's so many potential topics to write about. Help us understand that thought process for a writer of like what is actually worth covering when you could technically write 10,000 posts a day and potentially all of them be fairly interesting. It's like you have to prioritize. So how does a newsroom kind of approach that in 2023? Yeah, I don't want to pretend that there's some sort of magical equilibrium that I ever was able to achieve. You are always balancing those needs, the needs of the audience to hear new information for you to you know, scoop new information that was previously unknown for you to serve an existing audience by covering the things that you know they already want. And then a certain percentage of it that is about keeping yourself from getting burnt out by covering things that you want to cover. You just go like, this is personally interesting to me. And honestly, those stories tend to be the most 
potent and valuable and interesting long term, especially for early stage companies. Like you convert somebody into a believer, a believer in the thing that you're doing, the thing that you're trying to accomplish, the mission that you have. And those writers will become sort of chroniclers of your progress over time. If you're able to capture one or two of those folks, everybody else is targets of opportunity, but you're able to sort of get into the minds and hearts of individual writers at a publication. It's so much more valuable than, oh, we got covered by publication X. It really is about getting covered by writer Y. And that is because they have an audience that they are trying to intentionally build. And it's just like anything else. Like, why do you advertise on Google instead of advertising on the street? Well, Google has aggregated an audience intentionally for this purpose. And like that writer is doing a lot of the same work, not for the same reasons, but really to the same end, which is they want a portable audience that comes with them wherever they go. They want people to understand that they are an authority on a particular subject. And because that begets new stories, they're able to generate sourcing in a particular universe, build a Rolodex in that universe, understand it really well so that when you come along pitching an app that happens to exist in that universe, let's say laundry as a service or whatever you're pitching, they're like, hey, I've covered laundry for a decade. Like, I know this. I can pull together my priors to help me to understand how they are actually trying to make a change here or make an impact here. And if they have all of that pre-existing knowledge of the space, you're going to get somebody that's approaching it in a more intelligent way, in a more understanding way. You're going to get a deeper story, a richer story, one that has more meat to it, and one that, frankly, will be more useful to you down the line. If you are in the venture back space, it can become an easy way to replace sending your pitch deck. You say, hey, check out this story that so-and-so wrote about us. I think it captures pretty well what we want to do. And if you want to know more, I'm happy to dive in and let you know what our progress has been since then, etc. But I've had plenty of people tell me personally, and I know other writers have the same experience in the past where they're like, hey, we pitched you. You really got it from the beginning. You wrote a great story on it. It wasn't like the story was universally positive. It pointed out some of the things, the challenges that we had, we thought it was fair. And we just stopped sending our deck and started sending the story. And we raised essentially off of your story because it was an idea that Here's somebody who is a student of that thing, of that space, and they are essentially taking on the role of an outside board member and saying, like, here are the challenges I think you're going to come up against. These are the things that really would be interesting if they did in the future. Here's what they're trying to do now. Here are the founders and their story and why they seem to be the right team to tackle this. And if you're able to get that kind of story, it could become a pretty linchpin moment. And I'm not being like, aggrandizing here. There are other ways to chart your course than getting one great story. But I have had that told to me over and over and over and over over the years that if you have somebody external that really believes in it and is a good storyteller and manages to tell the story in that way, even if it's not like every word is something you love, maybe they're critiquing things about it or whatever, you end up with a believer outside and that helps boost morale, it boosts your ability to tell that message and say, we're not just speaking our book, somebody else sees what we're trying to do. And that can be really helpful. Yeah, I think that's a really good point is don't just inundate all the tips email boxes, but actually go look for the writer. So if you want TechCrunch to cover your app, you need to know who's the fintech writer, who at TechCrunch cares about weather apps, who at TechCrunch cared about Mint. Because the example we were giving earlier, like you're going to land that pitch 
better if you're pitching the person who actually cares about personal finance versus pitching a broader story. I guess there's some amount of the mainline tips email gets distributed. If there is something interesting, your hit rate's going to be higher if you know the person actually cares about what you're doing. And then craft your pitch more individualistic. Like, hey, I know you've written about personal finance in the past. And those sorts of things, I think, get missed often in just a spray and pray approach to PR versus that kind of more nuanced and crafting a message. And then I think that audience site fit is also important. Like TechCrunch is not the place to pitch certain things like the TechCrunch audience doesn't go to TechCrunch. I mean, it's a good thing for you to chime in on. Like, how do you view the TechCrunch audience and what they care about versus some of these pitches you get where it's a cool app, but you're like, eh, it's just not what the TechCrunch audience is coming to TechCrunch for. This would be better for 9to5Mac or Mac Rumors or somebody who covers the kind of enthusiast side of things more. How do you think about that? There are a lot of reasons people read any site. So I don't like to overgeneralize because I've seen just how granular it can get from an audience perspective and how you have to sort of play the keyboard and really touch different tempos for different people on a day-to-day basis. But I can say with some authority that some of the major reasons people read TechCrunch, it's really three kind of major reasons. Market intelligence, like what are competitors doing? What's happening in the space? What are people investing in? Who are they investing in? And is this somebody I should target because I'm in a similar space? The second is recruiting. So very simply, we want people to join us. So if we can get a story told about what we're trying to do, how hard it is, how hard the problem is, how interesting it is, et cetera, we can then use that as a recruiting tool and then raising money. If we're able to get a story there, we can then use that to raise money or get attention, set us apart from the rest of the industry, the thousands of companies that are pitching investors, because you think our inboxes are inundated, investors' inboxes are 10 times worse, right? On an individual basis, they're not. We get it all, but I get an aggregate. Investors' inboxes are very full too. So those are kind of like the major reasons. So if somebody has got an app and they're not doing any of those things, it is the fourth reason that anybody pitches anybody anywhere, just why I didn't really include it in the primary TechCrunch bucket, is user acquisition. So you want to pitch so that people download and use your app. Our audience is very specific in that regard. So when we post on an app, it often gets thousands of new users That is not unusual. Sometimes tens of thousands, in rare cases, hundreds of thousands of new users over the course of several weeks that the article stays in high circulation. And, you know, obviously there's exceptions where evergreen articles feature a particular app and that app still tells us, man, we still get people signing up from there. And that's great. It's all lovely. It's sort of the reason you put an app out there in the first place as a writer. You're like, I found it interesting. So if other people find it interesting, that's a win, right? For you. Like you don't really... I'm going to use the term very loosely here, so forgive me, but you don't care if they get users or not, but it's nice because you cared in the first place. You cared to write about it, so then the follow-on effect of them getting users feels good because you're like, cool, I cared about it enough, other people cared about it, that's my job. That part of it is fun, but the user acquisition thing is very targeted. So like, if you're looking at that being your primary goal, you're not raising 
you're not recruiting a bunch of people. Like you're hiring maybe one or two, almost always, hopefully, if you're growing, looking at maybe bringing on some additional help to help you grow. But your primary use case is like, okay, user acquisition. I really think that user acquisition, that target for this much better suited to things like TikTok install ads or Facebook install ads or attribution on Google or whatever the case may be. Like that should be your user acquisition strategy for the long-term broad base scattershot. However, your pinpoint user acquisition, like acquiring certain users, certain kinds of users, then pitching a particular publication becomes very useful. So it's not like I'm going to get a million users just because I got an article on TechCrunch. But you may get a few thousand users of a very specific type, like early adopters, power users, people that are very likely to give you feedback, people that are very likely to like email you personally and be like, hey, I noticed this thing was broken. There's lots of really interesting cross-section of people, builders, creators, engineers, investors, people that take a very particular high intensity interest in apps and in companies that they see on our site. And I think that that is very useful at certain points in your growth career, in your growth trajectory. So whereas the long tail may feel a little different, the near term, it can be very strategically important and interesting to target certain sites. And on that topic of posts that do sometimes get 100,000 views or whatever, how much in 2023 are writers still thinking, like, how much traction is this post going to get? Like, how important is that? And I know that's going to vary publication to publication. But speaking from your experience at TechCrunch and, you know, all the friends you have in journalism, how much are you thinking like, well, I don't really want to cover this because I doubt it's going to get much traction. Like, is that still something you're thinking about day in, day out? Yes, you'd be a liar to say that that wasn't a concern that was always floating in your head because the cascading set of goals is that the publisher defines a growth goal. The editor has to figure out a way to generate the traffic to contribute to that goal or other revenue aspects that involve editorial, anything related to that, whether it's traffic or in our case events, programming or other things like that from an editorial perspective. And of course, it cascades down from there if you have managers or editorial desk managers or managing editors or whatever, and then down to the writers. At some point, it's going to cascade down and that writer is going to understand that the overall goals of the publication, hopefully in a nice, good way where they feel like, I want to contribute to this goal. I want us to win. That's great. At a lot of publications, I understand. It is not that pleasant and it is much more specific. Like you have traffic goals of X amount and where are the posts that are generating that? And, you know, I want these out now and we need to generate traffic X, Y, or Z. Now, that's understandable. These are businesses. Editorial business is still a business. We handle things differently, I think, than a lot of other news orgs because we were extremely, always were extremely transparent with our writers about where we were in terms of goal setting, why we were going there, where we were headed. It's just my leadership style to try to operate from consensus rather than mandate, rather than saying like, you will do X. It's here's what we want to accomplish. And then back into the, and then therefore, <laughs> I really need you to do X. And that's, I think, has been helpful. You'd have to talk to my former employees, but I think it has been helpful in like keeping people around for a lot longer than a lot of other orgs or at least happier at their jobs. But the fact is that every writer, every day, has a story selection job to do that that's their primary job it's not it's not any of the other things everything else cascades from there they have to select stories to pursue right and sometimes that comes from a source that tips them off to a thing and then they're like i'm going to pursue this because this is unknown information and i'm going to pursue it sometimes it's from a pitch somebody's like i have this app i really think you'd love it given everything that you write about i'd 
convinced that you'd love it. And you're like, okay, cool, I'll bite, right? What is it? And like, that's a story selection choice. And those choices are always predicated on the fact that like, will this push the overall or towards its goals? And that in many ways is traffic. So if you're writing, therefore, ipso facto, if you are writing about something that nobody's ever heard of, you have to be very convinced that you're going to be able to tell that story in a way that's going to capture broad attention and translate that into traffic. Or you're going to have to say, this one goes in the column of, I think it's important that we write about this now so that we look really smart later, or this will turn into a larger story later on, or we'll be able to follow this down the course of its becoming a much larger thing that more people care about. And I think that's the sweet spot for TechCrunch is that we always wanted to be super early to stuff, 12 to 18 months early to things, so that by the time it made it to the pages of the Times or the Journal or anything like that, people could go look at the history of the company on TechCrunch. They could go, what did the founder say about the company like three weeks after he started the company to TechCrunch? That's an important thing because it keeps people honest. We definitely have a lot of company history. And I always told my people that in some ways we are writing the history of Silicon Valley in real time. And so like, if you're able to go back onto the pages of TC and see an early, an app covered very early before anybody knew who the founder was, or maybe there was their first company and now they're a serial founder, big wake or something like that. But you could see the story of it and what they were saying about it and why they founded it and all that stuff. So our writers had the remit to balance those needs to write about broad interest stories about companies like Apple or Google or big names that almost anybody would be interested in some move they were making, but put it in the context of the startup universe. Oh, Apple farted. What does this fart mean for your business? What does it mean for a developer trying to generate its own fart? That's an important distinction, you know, about the way that we covered stuff. It wasn't just like, oh, Apple did X. It's like, Apple did X and here's what it means for you and for our audience, for our particular universe. I think a lot of sites out there, their primary job is just to recount and announce the things that Apple has done, which is fine. If that's your job, if that's your remit and you are an enthusiast site for an enthusiast audience, great. There's no shame in that. That's your thing. Like a lot of people are busy, they work all day, whatever. They come home, they're like, I can just open 95 Mac and scroll and see the cool stuff that's happened. Or I can open Mac Rumors and see if new hardware is going to be launching. And like they got their calendar and I can kind of make a buying decision. Those are all genuine user driven services. For us, given our universe, our service that we were providing is like, oh, I'm a developer, we're a young company, there's three of us, we're trying to make X happen, and Apple just announced a thing that we can take advantage of to maybe get us to the next level. I really want to understand that thing. I want to understand what it's about. I want to get a perspective of a certain writer, as you mentioned, because I know that they understand this space really well. And if this writer tells me this is actually kind of a dead end and most of the APIs you would want to use to take advantage of this are private still, so don't get too excited. I'm going to be like, okay, cool. We can modulate. We don't have to like pivot and like put all of our engineering resources on implementing this if we understand that it's still nascent. And Apple's like, we'll do something cool with this in two years. We can take our time or whatever. That application of engineering resources, business decision-making from an engineering perspective or from a true business perspective, monetary perspective, like those things we felt were like important duties. But at the same time, you have to also be doing the work of finding the new stuff, putting the galoshes on and wading out into the swamp and picking and holding these things up to the light because that is the job that we provide the core readership, the people that sit down at their desk and open a tab 
and the tab defaults to TechCrunch, right? Like we had to service that audience of hundreds of thousands of people that read us every single day. That idea of balancing those was always a huge point of stress. Like you carry that in your lumbar because you have to satisfy the needs to grow and the revenue needs of the organization, but you also have to satisfy the innate job that you're doing for the audience, especially the most loyal audience, and make sure that you're not giving up one for the other. You can't just be all pigeonhole all the time or all rabbit hole all the time because then you'll end up not getting any new audience at all. But you also can't go fully broad because then the core audience is like, you don't do this job for me anymore that you used to do. I can get this broad stuff elsewhere too. And your unique perspective isn't enough. I need the unique perspective. And then I also need the brand new. That balancing act is tough. Yeah. To kind of circle back to pitching, understanding this about TechCrunch, I think will help folks understand how to pitch TechCrunch. And this is why I wanted to have you on. And this all may be changing, just so everybody knows. <laughs> I'm no longer in charge, but I will say a lot of the writers individually at TC have always appreciated individual pitching. And I know writers at other publications do too. They tell me every day, and I'm sure they tell you. If you know their work and you follow their work and you know they'd be interested and fascinated in that, that is going to be a far more effective pitch than the most clever subject line that you could write that gets blasted out to everybody. And so when you're going to pitch Vogue, you understand what Vogue carries and cares about and why they care about your fashion app. When you're going to pitch The Verge, you need to understand what The Verge cares about, what those writers care about, what their job to be done in the broader press ecosystem is. And like you said, 9to5Mac is a great place for new app developers to pitch because they do a ton of stories. And so you can understand, okay, for pitching 9to5Mac, they just care more about, hey, this is a new app. And they're less focused on that broader storytelling of writing the history of Silicon Valley than TechCrunch is. So when you pitch TechCrunch, you need to be thinking about that kind of storytelling. And when you pitch 9to5Mac, you don't send them the same pitch that you send to the writer at TechCrunch. You send them a totally different pitch. And to be most effective at this, you, you really do need to understand and think about those perspectives. And I think it was really helpful for you to share that perspective. Everybody thinks oh, TechCrunch is the ultimate place to get my app covered or business covered or whatever, because it is that history of Silicon Valley, the paper of record for the tech industry, if you will. But sometimes you got to tell the right story if you're actually going to get coverage. So let's talk a little bit more about that. We kind of used two hypotheticals with Mint going down and then Apple weather service having issues. But what are some other ways and stories that you think an app business should be pitching TechCrunch specifically, and then maybe more broadly, that will register with the writers will register with the broader audience. Given the, how crowded the app space is, I think it's really important for you to tell stories that they're going to focus on differentiation factors almost exclusively. In other words, I think a lot of times, especially in early days, you get so wrapped up in all the work that you've done to build out like the basis for this thing that you're creating that you get really enamored with it. As you should. You should be really pleased <laughs> with all of your work. You should be really happy because otherwise, why are you doing it? Like, you should be really excited about the fact that it exists and that the company exists and that it has employees and that it has a product and 
that it's on the App Store or, or about to be. And you should be really proud of all the fundamentals that you've built in. Maybe you've done work with accessibility. Maybe you've done work with design that you're really proud of. Maybe you've done work with some base cleverness of your approach. But in all reality, all that stuff is sort of assumed. Like we wouldn't even be looking at your pitch or at your idea or concept or whatever if those things weren't already met. The bar is just higher now. Existing does not mean anything. Congratulations, and I'm not being rude or crude about it, but it doesn't mean anything. It's like the old saying that ideas are worthless. Ideas are worthless. That still remains true to today. Let's put it this very specifically. Ideas are worthless in company building because if you do not execute on those ideas, if you don't build those ideas, if you don't make those ideas real, they're worth zero, right? Which is why somebody's like, I have an idea for an app. Congratulations, you have nothing. That remains true to this day. However, I would say the bar is even higher now, which is that solid design that uses at a base level Apple's fairly robust design frameworks and UI frameworks that they've provided. You know, the bone stock stuff looks pretty good these days. That uses those basic frames or Google, like if you're launching on the Android store, Google has a really solid set of design language and a solid set of UI elements now that I think 10 years ago definitely didn't exist. Even five years ago wasn't that great. But I think in the last few years, we've gotten to a really solid place where there's no excuse for you not to come with like a really solid game on all those fronts. But then once you reach that point, you have to realize that you've just reached zero. And so like from there, it is what you're doing in service of your mission that sets you apart, like that differentiation in execution or onboarding or feature use or set of circumstances that is really going to allow you to catch the eye of a reporter or catch the eye of someone the cleverness that exists above and beyond the table stakes are what is going to set it apart. That is, I think, sometimes a hard realization for a lot of people because they get in this place where they've been so close to it for so long that they're like, we did all of these things really, really well. That's great. So do a lot of people. I'm just going to give you rough percentages here. So if we get pitched by 500 people in a day, not unusual for any writer, you get pitched by 500 people in a day, 100 of those people have really done the work to just put something together that looks like it actually is a real company. Out of those 100, maybe a dozen are even in your space. A dozen have done the job of like actually pitching you correctly, like in saying like, hey, we're real, but also we're really interesting to you. We're not just real and interesting to someone. We're like We're real and interesting to you as a writer. And out of those dozen, you are then forced with this forcing function of, okay, what is the unique bits out of these? And I'm exaggerating here because it doesn't always come in clumps like this. But let's say those dozen, you're a fintech writer and all of those dozen are fintech companies and all of those dozen look legit. They've done the work to have a solidly designed app that seems to have some user affordances that are cool and that looks like they've done the work. And so out of those, which of those has the interesting hook of that additional percentage above zero, whether that's a really cleverly designed feature, taking advantage of a, a freshly launched new sensor or feature of a platform like the Apple or Google or somebody else has shipped, is addressing a need in the current environment. We talked about post-ZERP earlier, but other environments can be like COVID was a good example, obviously, of many people capitalizing on that. 
I don't even really think it matters if I'm talking about something that exists right now because people may watch this and it may be different a week from now. But like OpenAI launches a new model. You've utilized that new model in a clever way. You've got a new feature, threads that tie into the overall stories that that writer has been covering or that the industry or audience is interested in. And then I think the big elephant in the room that we haven't talked about yet and that I think can be very interesting if it's done right is the story of the people that have built this thing. So you have to reach to zero. You have to get to zero first. You have to have a thing that exists that's really well built, that seems clever, that seems like it's tackling an interesting problem. And then you can start telling personal stories. My brother and I founded this app. My sister and I founded this app. We saw a need because our mother was in hospice and there was no elder care app that also integrated messaging in this way so that we could check up on her quality of care every day, you know, with a few simple taps, et cetera. And like those kinds of opportunities, I think are ones that allow you to do that storytelling above and beyond, but you have to hit zero first. I think that's a really good point that even in the storytelling, like, oh, my sister and I created this app because our mom was in hospice. That's part of a story, but you still have to tell a story of like, why does it matter? And did you do something unique? Because if there's a hundred other apps that do the same thing, your personal story of why you created it doesn't matter as much as it actually doing something. And so I think that was a great framing. It's like, you got to get to zero. Like it's got to be a good, functional, well-built app. There's just such a high baseline now, but then you really do need to do something above and beyond. And I think this applies to marketing generally as well. It's just that you need to focus on that differentiation. And if you're not doing something new and unique and exciting and helpful, what are you doing? <laughs> and so getting to zero and building that stuff on top and then telling those stories is then what gives you the authority to then tell more stories about why and how and things like that. So that's a really good framing. Changing gears a little bit, how effective do you think PR agencies are these days at helping folks tell those stories? And how effective are PR agencies at working with the press these days? Do you recommend working with somebody to help craft those stories? Or is it maybe something a founder should just get really good at themselves and take that one-to-one -one approach? There is a service provided by good. I'm going to preface this by saying, <laughs> yeah. so let's say you've managed to identify a solid PR firm with good reputation that seem very attentive to your needs and understanding of where you are in your course of existence as a company. There are definitely services that they provide that you're trading money for time with a lot of those agencies. And they're doing the work of like packaging, press kits, and offering up services that allow you to pitch a broad number of publications or a broad number of media or come up with that. But I think that honestly, strategy-based comms and marketing is so much more interesting and so much more important long-term. Uh, I think a lot of people get into this thing like, okay, we need somebody to make press releases and send press releases and write those and pitch people on our behalf. All that's fine. And I think it can work for certain classes of company and app. So like for an app that is interested in garnering the largest possible pitch surface area that goes across hundreds or thousands of, I don't know, let's say gaming blogs, right? Like, let's say you're a game that has a relatively quasi-predatory in-app purchase <laughs> scenario and your job is to get it out 
to hundreds or dozens of sites that can just get it into circulation so that your SEO and therefore attribution and acquisition strategies across Google and Facebook are aided by that. You want like the purest form of PR company, right? Which is like generating press releases, pitching it to thousands of sites, managing that flow and all of that stuff because you don't have the time for it. These are not people that are doing CEO interviews or in-depth explorations of the rationale behind their app. They just want the name of the app out there, the fact that it exists, the fact that it has a few screenshots that are interesting and has a link to download. They want to seed that into the universe in a way that is one step above completely inorganic acquisition, which would just be them placing ads. That's one step above that. But I think several steps, several layers above that is the idea that you have a strategist that works with you to generate a strategy around your story. Like the story that you're trying to tell, how you're trying to tell it, the narrative that you're building over time that your users now and in the future will always recognize as true, the story you've always been telling, you won't get that out of a PR firm. You really need to get that out of a PR strategist. You mentioned one of the services that PR agencies can help with is press kits and things like that. I know it's something that's actually really important for somebody pitching to consider is to make it as easy as possible on the writer to write the story. Any tips on how to make that super easy? So we've talked crafting a good pitch. You've got their attention, but now they have to do the work. How do you make that easy and more compelling for them to tell that story? If you want to talk about like mechanical baseline pragmatic stuff that you can do to help make sure that your pitch is more well received, short, simple, straight to the point subject lines, a couple of lines of body copy. Don't inundate because most of that stuff won't get read, especially if it feels like it's been pasted in, which inevitably it will. Because if you're pasting something in there, why should I read a paste? I want to read a couple of simple sentences from you about why your thing is unique, why it's interesting. If you have a very defining, potent, straightforward screenshot of something that's in your app and you're like, look, we did this. It's really cool. You're going to love it. Put that in there too, right in the body of the email. And then most writers, if they have any sort of OPSEC, will not have images loading automatically. So it's no harm, no foul. It'll load just as fast. You don't have to worry about it. The image will be collapsed and then they can always click on view image if they want to, right? But just from the nature of protecting against viruses and tracking pixels and anything else, most writers have images hidden by default. By the way, if you can avoid on any individual pitch, I would never include tracking pixels or links. It's just sort of a matter of respect. Now, I understand completely if you're doing a campaign or a broad pitch, you need those, right? We Everybody understands it, everybody gets it. But if you're doing individual pitch, don't do like read receipts or tracking pixels inside emails, and especially never ever call them on, oh, you, I saw you opened my email, creepy. It's really weird. That's not gonna do anything. If you wanna like email them and say, hey, I didn't know if you got my email, <laughs> great. You know what I mean? Fine, okay, we understand persistence and follow-up, although at some point, chill. The tracking stuff, do away with that. And then you can always attach the press kit. And attaching the press kit with high-resolution images or just providing a link to it, depending on the service that you're using, with high-resolution images, all the information they could ever want about the founders, their backstory, the app, its purpose, and then the images or assets necessary in a link or tucked away in an attachment, but leaving the main copy as a place for you to tell your personal story in a few sentences 
I think is the most effective pitches that I've seen are that way. We've given you all the resources that you need to write this story if you find it compelling without any additional outreach. However, we're here. If you need us, feel free, email me directly. I'll answer right away, whatever. Here's my direct email. Here's my phone number, whatever you feel comfortable with as a founder or as an app creator. But whatever direct connection you can provide is always good. Text me at whatever if you have any questions, things like that. Because oftentimes writers are under crazy deadlines. They're trying to move fast. Getting a quick response can mean the difference between them writing that story that day or maybe it gets pushed to the next day if they don't get a response and then Instagram sells for a billion dollars and they don't write about you anymore, right? Because <laughs> they're busy with other things. And so you want to provide the, the most lubrication possible, but you also don't want the body of the copy to read like a Facebook ad or to feel cluttered with all this information that's overwhelming. Just keep it simple. I think that's fantastic advice and it's something I probably haven't done good at over the years with my press kit specifically is that I've kept my pitches pretty tight, but I've also kept my press kits maybe a little too tight. So you're saying the best thing is to have that really tight pitch, but once they click, you want to give them as much resource, but organized well, easy to read. You still want to craft that in a way that makes it easy on them, but to just give them all the resources where they don't have to interview you to understand parts of the story. Like they could just jump to that press kit. They have everything they need, images, details, lists of features. Like that's where you put the depth because you've already got their attention, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a really straightforward standard tactic. The one thing you do want to avoid is attempting to write the story for the writer. So if you're like including a section, let's say on bios, let's say you feel that your founder story is really strong. You've got a set of strong founders. We mentioned that brother and sister earlier that had a compelling story about their mother in hospice, and they wrote this app to facilitate communication and standards of care and all of that stuff. A couple of lines about that is great, but you don't want to go too in depth because it doesn't leave any room for the writer to tell a story. If you have a really compelling founder story and you've explained it enough in a few sentences so that they understand it, that will be enough. And then you offer the communication so that they can then communicate with you, do any additional interviewing and tease that story out and draw it out. That feels good. What doesn't feel good as a writer is somebody having pitched you what they view as the story pre-written, in quotes. Maybe not a full story pre-written, although I have seen that. It's so funny. <laughs> um, but like a story about them, you want to tease them with your story. I've got a really compelling story, X, Y, I think is really cool. But then let them go, wait, really? Like, how did that happen? How did it come about? You know, pulling out the details from there. So when I say details, you want enough detail in there to offer them teasers of why the story is interesting. And then, of course, mechanically speaking, you know, like app store listings and descriptions and screenshots, all of that stuff so that you don't have to like manually go to the app store to pull screenshots or anything like that. And then of course, test flight links or links to download the app if it's live, just to make sure that they have access to it and direct access. They don't have to go searching for it. All the mechanical stuff that I'm sure everybody knows, but I think that's super important to include, you know. And I think that's maybe a good framing then is that don't write the story, but provide the building blocks for them to write the story. Awesome. Well, I think this has been super helpful to dig into all the thinking behind how something goes from pitch to actually landing on TechCrunch and how to tell the right stories. And I think so much of this applies to marketing more broadly, pitching influencers, creating your copy for advertising, all those kind of things. Everything we talked about applies to that as well. But as we wrap up, anything else you wanted to share? I really had a nice time talking about this stuff. I mean, I think that there is a high amount of noise 
but signal still pokes through and those ones that poke through typically are so much more fun to write about and interesting. And I think if you have an interesting, compelling story, you know it's truly differentiated. It's not a shell game that is basically like another vehicle that's very similar to anything else out there, but you think you've got a unique story, but you really don't. I think you're going to win out attention somewhere. Persistence does pay off. People are very, very, very busy. It's very intense out there, so don't lose heart. You will find a way to punch through. It's not a function of you. I think it's very important for founders to understand from a mental health perspective and a frustration perspective. It's very, very, very unlikely that it is anything about you personally or about some competitor though that got covered and you didn't. It is generally a byproduct of it just being extremely noisy out there these days. So keep at it. Stay persistent. All right. Thanks so much, Matthew. It's great having you on today. No problem, David. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.